0: Thank you and welcome. Uh, My name is Daniel Spiata. I just wanted to uh, welcome you to my lecture uh, today on uh, Love and the Law in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. The world is filled with conflicts, both apparent and real, between personal love and civic duty. On the one hand, we experience love, eros, as spontaneous, radically free, and imperative. Love seems to transcend the order of the law. On the other hand, our, com- our communities have claims upon us and are affected by our choices, not least the choices about whom we love and how we respond to that love. How can love come under restraint without violating its radical freedom? In this brief talk, I hope to consider how Shakespeare's play, The Midsummer Night's Dream, expresses the demands of both love and law Manifests the dangers of neglecting either and proposes a mutually reinforcing Resolution the first scene of the play swiftly introduces these tensions the action kicks off with Aegeus the father and lord in Athens when he brings his daughter Hermia and two young Athenian nobles Lysander and Demetrius into an informal trial before Theseus the Duke The case Aegeus lays out is that Hermia and Lysander are threatening to break the Athenian law, which establishes that a young woman may not marry without her father's consent. Lysander has wooed Hermia privately, and the two have pledged to marry each other. Aegeus takes this, with some justice, as a circumvention of his paternal privilege. Meanwhile, Demetrius has forsaken his betrothal with another young woman, And Hermia's close friend named Helena, and pursued Hermia in her stead, specifically by seeking Aegeus's consent. Hermia has no respect for Demetrius since he has abandoned her friend and she has already given her heart to Lysander. But Aegeus calls upon Theseus to carry out the Athenian law, which guarantees the father's power by determining that a woman will either marry the man of his choice, be executed, or live a life of consecrated virginity. Aegeus, by the way, first introduces us to this law, and when he does, he characteristically leaves out the last option. He focuses only on the options that involve his daughter not willing against him, either by conforming to his will, or by ceasing to will at all. As he puts the case, Aegeus makes it abundantly clear that he is not primarily motivated by seeking his daughter's welfare rather, by a spirit of resentment at having been deprived of his right to give consent. When citing the Athenian law, he declares that, As she is mine, I may dispose of her. And he is clearly willing to have her put to death, rather than to allow her to determine whom she will love on her own, or even bend to give his assent to her determination. He views his paternity as conferring absolute ownership over his daughter. He adverts to the law because it has the force to compel Hermia to return under the dominant sway of his will. Aegeus, therefore, represents the disease that besets the law, when the law exists in order to serve private interests rather than the common good. Aegeus is willing to bend a law that, as Theseus will show, has some metaphysical grounding away from its telos. Theseus, However, largely agrees with Aegeus. He views the positive law of Athens as absolutely inflexible. He attempts to persuade Hermia to alter her opinion, but beyond that he has no help to offer. His argument in defense of the law is in part explanatory and in part quite troubling. He says, Be advised, fair maid, to to you your father should be as a god one that composed your beauties, yea, and one to whom you are but as a form and in wax by him imprinted and within his power to leave the figure or disfigure it. That is, he points out that there is an analogy between the father-child relationship and that which obtains between a divine creator and his creature. This analogy furnishes the basis for a paternal authority, but Theseus applies the divine privilege to the human father in a totalizing way, which is certainly unnerving. It appears to deny that a child has any self-sovereignty at all, any power over him or herself, and to assert that a father has absolute authority. Indeed, it implies that the father's actions are always just simply because he is the father. Theseus has applied a voluntaristic theology to political and familial relationships an explosive cocktail to be sure in response to this Hermia asserts her resolution not to accede to the proposed marriage between her and Demetrius She asserts this boldly and in the end with some heat, but also with a kind of restraint She does not waste words inspired by she says I know not what power she stands her ground asking Theseus to clarify her legal position This request yields from Theseus the clarification that the Athenian law does in fact provide the young woman with at least some self-sovereignty. She may at least choose to be a nun. Armed with this knowledge, Hermia declares that she would prefer to live a celibate life than to, as she says, yield her virgin patent up unto his lordship whose unwished yoke her soul consents not to give sovereignty. Hermia's response makes it clear that she feels her love for Lysander to be a real commitment which bears rights of its own and obligations, not to be violated or coerced. She cannot create a similar relationship with Demetrius on demand, and she cannot give him sovereignty over her body under coercive conditions. She manifests implicitly the assertion that romantic eros is radically free. Theseus, Aegeus, Demetrius, they all leave Hermia alone after Theseus reasserts that her love for Lysander has no weight in the deliberations of the Athenian law, and Lysander takes the opportunity to create a plot whereby the two of them will flee Athens into the surrounding woods to a place where, as he says, the sharp Athenian law cannot pursue us. These words signal that there are two major moral and metaphysical places in the play the city of Athens, characterized consistently by law, and the wild wood, which offers freedom from that law and is, in consequence, viewed as a place where romantic eros can flourish. The wood, unbeknownst to Lysander and Hermia, or to Demetrius and Helena, who pursue them into the wood, is full of fairies, all loosely governed by the king Oberon. Thus, two realms appear under two rulers, Athens with Theseus and the wood under Oberon. The lovers try to resolve their problems in each realm. And both realms and rulers offer their own characteristic solutions to the problem at hand. That problem is, in its most general terms, discord. The failure of harmony with regard to the heart's desire between people. The problem of discord manifests itself differently in Athens and in the wood. In Athens, as we have seen, it manifests as a disharmony between the father and child and between the citizen and the state. In the wood, however, it manifests initially as unrequited love. In Athens, to review, the relationship that is prioritized is the vertical, the natural, the familial, the ties of blood, these natural and even metaphysically permanent relationships are supported, strengthened, and extended by the law. Duke Theseus shows himself to be a servant of that law. In the problematic Athens of Act 1, Concord is thought to be found exclusively by adjusting the metaphysically subordinate to the metaphysically superior, the child to the parent, the citizen to the state. In his parting words to Hermia, Theseus had indicated that concord is to be found by constraining and reframing personal desire according to the patriarchal decree. For you, fair Hermia, look you arm yourself to fit your fancies to your father's will. These words imply that the movement of Eros is entirely voluntary and that there is no spontaneous element in it and certainly no imperative force. Romance, the affections of the heart, are, at best, a dispensable window dressing according to the Athenian law. In the wood, the relationship that is prioritized is the lateral and extensive relation of eros. Oberon wants to bring lovers rather than parents and children into union. Rather than commanding rational animals to impose an intellectually generated form upon their passions, however, Oberon uses a more direct power to manipulate desire itself. Shakespeare provides Oberon with a powerful ointment, the essential oil of a flower called love in idleness, which has been burdened with the enamoring power of Cupid's strongest arrow. The drug causes the one who receives it to fall into dotage upon whatever he or she sees first. Having observed Demetrius' frustration with Helena for sticking so close to him as they pursued, Demetrius, uh, has pursued Lysander and, and Hermia into the woods, Oberon decides to solve the problem of Demetrius's coldness by having Robin Goodfellow, also known as Puck, apply this love juice to Demetrius's eyes. But just as Theseus's final words to Hermia make it seem an easy task to conform one's desires according to someone else's principles, so Oberon's instructions to Robin Goodfellow make it seem like the correction of Demetrius's coldness is capable of a simple solution. And just as Theseus's proposed solution ignores certain clear consequences, like driving your daughter away and making them run from the law, and proves both ineffective and undesirable, so Oberon's solution runs amok pretty early. Neither realm or ruler, it seems, is able to solve the problem of discord by his accustomed means. In the world of the wood, the presumption is that desire is essentially good and has the preferential option over restraint. This is what gives it its character of freedom. But a consequence of this presumption is that when Robin comes across Lysander and Hermia sleeping at a distance from each other, he easily mistakes this act of restraint and believes it to manifest churlish coldness. In fact, Hermia had had to persuade Lysander to commit to premarital purity. He had wanted to share one turf and one bed. Only with diligent defense can Hermia preserve the purity of their love and the joyful peace of the marriage bed by postponing the immediate gratification of passion. Robin, Puck, however, presumes that young folks of the opposite sex would be sleeping together and so cannot recognize this more perfect expression of eros. He therefore ends up anointing Lysander's eyes and disrupting the stable relationship. Now one of the chief interpretive difficulties that besets this play is the question of what to make of the power of this flower which is called love and idleness. It traipses boldly where genies feel fear to tread, directly tampering with the heart. It is a weapon of mass destruction in the hands of an autonomous rogue. Demetrius comes in for a dose and never receives the antidote. Does this mean that he is still under the enchanting power at the end of the play? Does his love for Helena ever mature? One partial response perhaps not universally satisfying, but at least useful, is to consider that this flower is the outward manifestation of the interior disposition of those who willfully seek the woods for the sake of escaping the law, or who intentionally enter into the moral terrain, as it were, of self-justifying desire. If this is so, then the physical anointing is only an outward sign of an inward reality of idleness in love. If we see in idleness a disposition characterized by indifference to one's real final cause, then there is something idle about the Eros that Lysander and Demetrius sustain, which, unleashed in the woods, expresses itself in its full wildness. Demetrius' betrayal of Helena... Back in Athens, manifests this idleness. Lysander's bid to share one turf and one pillow for us both indicates his own individually feeble commitment to purity. Lysander and Demetrius quite clearly, but also Helen to a lesser degree, and Hermia too, though still less than Helena, already participate in this disposition of love and idleness before they enter the wood. By flying from Athens, they seek a realm in which love and desire are self-justifying rather than being aimed at some higher end. And in escaping the restraints of the law, they lose its protection against the instabilities implied in the rule of idle love. The most obvious instability comes in the form of the young men's inconstancy, the immediate and passionate transfer of their affections from Hermia to Helena. First, Lysander and then Demetrius, once anointed, start pursuing Helena with over-the-top expressions of ardent love. Phrases like, transparent Helena, or sphery proliferate in Acts 2 and 3. Both of these epithets assert that Helena's beauty is celestial. And even when Demetrius takes things down to earth, rhapsodizing about the redness of of her lips, those kissing cherries, the men never approach any closer to sincere and particular admiration. They are stuck in the stylized expressions of love, using hackneyed phrases and images which have been indiscriminately applied to fair beloveds for countless ages. By highlighting the cliched character of their speech, I don't mean to deny that they have strong emotions. But I do mean to point out that these emotions do not come from a real desire for union with a specific beloved. The youths are focusing exclusively on expressing their own feelings. The ardor of their hearts has become the object of their attention, not Helena. The radical and immediate shift in affection alongside this emphatic verbal insistence, paradoxically, threatens the credibility of love language and indeed of loving itself. Helena, for better or for worse, interprets all this hyperbole as an elaborate and unmannerly prank at her expense. The more oaths these boys pile up in defense of their undying love, the less she believes them. This skepticism is perhaps the most sinister consequence of the rule of unfettered desire, for it threatens to cut Helena off and anyone else who agrees with her from Uh, any social relationship, since every human relationship is based in some degree on trust. Once convinced that every word and deed must bear an ironic significance, Helena no longer trusts either man And when the poor abandoned Hermia steps onto the scene, Helena reads even her innocent bewilderment as complicity in this ironic plot. Skepticism breeds impatience, and ultimately Helena's high-handedness, combined with the transfer of Lysander's affection, leads even Hermia to break down and threaten Helena with physical violence. The youths resorted to the Greenwood as a land free from onerous laws and curtailed curtailed their flourishing. What they discover instead is that the presence of nomos, or law, as an ordering principle has really held at bay serious problems and created a healthy environment in which a decent mutual trust can be established. Having sought the solemnization of a personal union without regard for the law of Athens, Hermia and Lysander have unwittingly, but really, struck at the root of all human relationships. The little polity of erstwhile friends and lovers is totally dissolved by the end of Act Three. This idleness or indifference to final causality alongside the social fragmentation which naturally follows in its wake is the characteristic defect of the disposition that would assert the urgent claims of romantic eros as self-justifying and imperative. It's the flip side, as it were, of the coin that Aegeus is the other face of. So does the failure of Oberon's knight rule or the license of love and idleness to generate concord of any kind, let alone sustainable concord, utterly discredit the claims of Eros? Now we see what the Athenian order has been set up to ward off, for surely paternal oversight and approval in tandem with the force of law would tether the vagaries of the wandering will. Having seen these defensive end of the Athenian law, we can perhaps reflect on a more positive end as well, Requiring the consent of the fathers guarantees that every family that is formed within the polis has been approved by the natural and legally subsidiary authorities. The family, which is the fundamental building block of society, will, ideally, remain strong and free from division and resentment, thus confirming the strength of Athens's political foundation and promoting its attempt to realize the common good. But, to return to the question at hand, does the failure of love and idleness mean that we must accept the obvious abuse and tyranny of Aegeus? Perhaps our view of the Athenian law has been clarified, but it still seems to me that the radical freedom of Eros demands p- some preservation. The display of Act I is not neutralized or suddenly shown to be generous and charitable. The dilemma persists by the end of Act Three. It appears that one can either have heartless order in the city, or heart-rending disorder in the wood. Is the cosmos hopelessly discordant? Fortunately, Shakespeare has led us into a comedy, so there must be a way out. It is interesting to see how he leads us into Concord. The first note to Mark is that the solution originates from within the wood, and comes through Oberon's agency. He produces a second flower, a white flower, which channels Diana's chaste power and which has authority over the effects of Cupid's love and idleness. Interestingly, Diana's power is not exactly the flip side of Cupid's. It does not force souls to desire the celibate life, for instance, though she is famously the virginal goddess. Instead, the power of chastity clears up and renews the lover's vision, restoring to Lysander his freedom. It restores to him the power to love in truth. Though the spell which Robin sings while re- reanointing Lysander's eyes only names Lysander as a recipient of this new essential oil, its general intent is clear. As Oberon had commanded, when next they wake, all this derision will seem a dream. That is, the lurid nightmare of shifting affections will evaporate from all of the Athenian youths. The strong implication is that the spell under which Demetrius suffers will also be lifted, even though only Lysander receives the restorative oil. But the larger point I want to make is that the first part of the solution, the sine qua non of the plays and Athens's resolution, is the restoration of the appropriate pairings of lovers, and that this appropriate pairing results from Oberon's activity and not from Theseus's. Though dangerous, hectic, and trying. The youth's experience in the woods does help them to come to a truer self-knowledge. They need something of this experience of freedom, even if that freedom also cannot be sustained in its own right. It is crucial that this freedom is not unchaperoned. The lovers are, unbeknownst to themselves, under some kind of protection, albeit less strict, even less principled protection than they would have enjoyed back in Athens. But Oberon is watching over things. So, granting, then, that the original and necessary movement towards resolution originates in the wood, the final guarantee of stability, however, does not come until the youths are brought back into the city and rejoin the social order. This comes to pass when Theseus, Hippolyta, and Aegeus discover the youths as they approach the borders of the forest in order to hunt in, in this hunting scene, um, it, uh, Theseus and Hippolyta spend some good time talking about their dogs, and it seems like a really funny part until they start using these mu- musical metaphors. They speak of the baying of their hounds in this way. Theseus asserts that he and Hippolyta will enjoy hearing the musical confusion of hounds. Hippolyta recounts her experience of Hercules' hunting and when she says, I never heard so musical a discord, such sweet thunder. Theseus responds that his dogs have a cry more tunable than any that was ever hallowed or cheered. What arises from these comments is the sense that discord itself can, in certain circumstances, result in a greater and more beautiful harmony. This sense that the pleasure of resolution into harmony depends in some way upon the existence of discord runs counter to Theseus's prior schooling of Hermia. Look, you arm yourself to fit your fancies to your father's will. There, Theseus spoke and acted as though to stray from the single melody was gravely problematic. And even in the scene of resolution, Theseus still marvels at the human manifestation of harmonious resolution. Addressing the two couples so close to each other, erstwhile in such great enmity, he asks, how comes this gentle concord into the world? It is perhaps surprising that this lord, ah, he, he admits at the very beginning, the very first lines almost of the play talk about him wooing his wife with his sword, Uh, and and winning her heart by doing her injury. So we should think that Theseus would have known these things, but whatever, he apparently has to learn them from seeing these youths. So, in the face of this unexpected resolution, Theseus agrees to readmit the youths into Athenian society according to their heart's election and not according to Aegeus' will. Fair lovers, says he, you are fortunately met. Aegeus, I will overbear your will. For in the temple by and by, with us, these couples shall eternally be knit in the covenant of matrimony. In this action, it becomes clear that the Athenian law is modified, altered not in its principle but in its focus. Theseus is willing to overbear Aegeus' will because Aegeus threatens to abuse his legal standing to satisfy his own desire for domination. Hearing Lysander admit that he and Hermia had fled Athens explicitly to evade the Athenian law, Aegeus had responded, I beg the law, the law, upon his head. They would have stolen away, they would, Demetrius, thereby to have defeated you and me, you of your wife and me of my consent, of my consent, that she should be your wife. It is now entirely clear that Aegeus respects the law because it, only because it secures the potency of his will. Theseus finally recognizes that paternal authority, however, is not an end in itself and that the Athenian order depends upon some willingness to acknowledge the sovereignty which each citizen has to give his or her heart. Paternal authority exists for the sake of bringing children to the point of maturity, and the exercise of that authority with regard to the children's marriages is aimed at ensuring social cohesion." Nevertheless, it is equally true that what the Athenian law secures is necessary for a full realization of romantic eros. Eros, too, is not an end in itself. It does not exist for the sake of experiencing the feeling of being in love. Instead, it draws lovers into the school of patience and ultimately leads them to the commitment of marriage, an essentially legal relationship. Marriage allows eros scope for its full flourishing, while strictly denying its apparent claim to unbridled self-sovereignty. In the last analysis, then, both Theseus's Athens and Oberon's Wood manifested insufficient ordering principles by themselves. The Athenian order took law, nomos, to be an end in itself, while Oberon's night rule supposed Eros to be a self-sufficient end. Order, for order's sake, yields totalitarian tyranny, heartless insufferable. Similarly, desire for desire's sake yields an ever-shifting chaos of betrayal and inconstancy, which undermines the grounds of reason itself by making trust impossible. Both nomos and eros require a mutual coordination by logos, by a commitment to the good, which reveals the proper end of both movements of spirit. A Midsummer Night's Dream proposes marriage, then, as the fitting icon of the joyous and fruitful fulfillment of this union of love and law. Thank you. It looks like there are some questions. Do I read them out? So, the first question Do you think there is weight behind Shakespeare being Catholic? weight with regard to interpreting this play? um, Probably, although I I, I tend to punt on this question, um, I do think that there is um, a preponderance of evidence that indicates that Shakespeare grew up in a Catholic world. Um, And it is my experience, both in my personal life and in reading literature, that people who grow up Catholic tend to retain a Catholic imagination. So it's certainly the case, I I should say that I opine strongly, that um, the Catholicism that uh, surrounded Shakespeare, no doubt, in his youth, had um, continued to manifest itself in his plays. I tend to think that Shakespeare is read most clearly as a Catholic author, um, but It's a very contentious claim and intelligent people have made very strong arguments on on sort of both sides of the question. So um, don't go to the Shakespearean for counsel because he will say both no and yes. Um, Another question, which Midsummer Night's Dream character best shows Shakespeare's understanding of the balance of law and love? I think it's a great question. Um, And I I would answer without, without hesitation Hermia. I think that Hermia is, is definitely the strongest of the characters. She's the central heroine. Um, uh, and, and so why, why do I say these things? Um, first, in, in the beginning, she uh, when she uh, responds to Theseus, who is laying out the law, who has told her that she needs to consider her father as a god... Um, she responds with great respect. Um, one might compare her, one might contrast her perhaps with Cordelia from King Lear who um, takes umbrage at tyrannous um, and, and irrational actions on her father's part. Not so with Hermia. So she seems to manifest as a sincere respect for Theseus as the lord and not sort of go off, off the wire. She also respects her father I mean, she doesn't call him evil or what, anything like that. She just—all she says is, "I wish that he would see with my eyes," um, and she she sort of resolves to follow out her um, desire to marry eros, uh, to marry um, uh, Lysander, um, not for the sake of sticking it to her father, but simply because she's trying to be good, to uh, true to her eros. Um, in the woods, also, she uh, is the one who. You know, she follows Lysander into the woods. She clearly loves him um, and is willing to follow him to to seek a marriage outside of the law of Athens. But it's her who uh, tells him to move off. Right? They're, they're going to go to sleep. They're lost in the woods. They're tired. They say, well, we can't go. Let's wait till morning light. And Hermia says, that's great. I'll lie down here. You go further off. And Lysander spends about 20 lines or more, I'm not sure, trying to persuade her that they need to sleep on the same turf, which presumably has consequences, Um, and so she she wards him off. So I I think that Hermia for sure um, manifests the, the most clear balance between the two. Another question. What are the best Shakespeare works to read for beginners? Mercy. It's a great question. I've I don't really know to be honest. Um, I think that Julius Caesar is a great play, um, sort of a, a solid plot which is sort of straightforward. Um, I might yeah, or uh, a solid plot which is straightforward but is still sort of full of depth and, and interest, interesting questions. it holds the attention. Um, perhaps Macbeth is also one of the great plays that um, uh, that holds the attention said that Creates a, a really important uh, that treats of a really important moral question, um, but does so in a in a particularly straightforward fashion. So um, maybe maybe Macbeth, I, I might I might come down and say. Um, and if you're looking for a comedy, maybe maybe uh, As You Like It is one of the uh, one of the the, the less complex? I'm not sure, but uh, the less sort of bewildering. Um, Then again, I see bewilderments where maybe not everyone sees bewilderments, so it's part of my characteristic. So this is a good question. Um, What what Shakespeare play needs to be read the most in our modern world, and why? Oh, mercy. It's a great question. I have left a lot out of this treatment of Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, I think that Midsummer Night's Dream is right up there as uh, a play that's just uh, of of incredible importance Um, because it treats seriously this question, which I think is of incredible importance to us right now, which is how do we adjudicate between um, desire and What you should do? How do we decide how to you know, how to act on our desires? Um, I mean, it's, it's quite clear that the, in the present day um, uh, Desires that are um, Intrinsically evil are being put forward to us as um, as things that should be performed because people have these desires um, so when, when desire is made to be a, uh, a, a law unto itself. I would say also that in the, in the parts that I didn't consider, um, this play treats of questions of, of certainty and skepticism. I briefly mentioned that, but there's a lot more to go on there, and I think that at this point, um, skepticism is a really important question that we need to answer. How do we know what is true? How do we respond to people who um, discount the faith or who believe that you can't know anything or that it's unlikely that you could know anything. This play has, uh, important instruction on that question. This play has important instruction on parental discipline, um, and, uh, and the relationship between spouses even. Um, so I, I think that in this day, uh, the family is under great attack. Um, the natural law is under great attack. And this play dramatizes, um, a lot of these questions in a way that I think is winsome and, and persuasive. So I, I might answer A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's not what I'm writing my dissertation on, but I think it's, I think it's a really important play. Um, Since Shakespeare intended his plays to be performed, do you have any recommendations to understand them better when reading them alone? Yes, that's a good question. Um, uh, just just to say one thing about the sort of uh, implication of the first clause, um, it is certainly the case that Shakespeare intended his plays to be performed. I think there's enough evidence out there as well that Shakespeare knew his plays would be read. Um, interestingly enough, he didn't take a lot of time to try to publish them himself. He, he never tried to publish his work himself with the possible exception of his sonnets. Um, so he, he didn't sort of go to, the, go to the work to make sure that his plays could be read, but there does seem to be evidence that he did intend them to be read as well. Um, so in, in, that, in that way, um, what I would say, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's a bunch of little knacks and tricks for you know, themes to look out for, um, and I suspect you could find um, you know, a decent digest of those on, dare I say it, Shmoop, or something like that, um, but, but um, what I would say is that above all things, I think Shakespeare wants his audiences, either readers or, or viewers, to grow in self-knowledge. The people who published the first folio, uh, Shakespeare's friends um, and, and sort of colleagues, um, wrote in their introduction to the folio, I have to paraphrase, I don't have to memorize, but that these plays are friends and guides, and that what they're befriending you for and guiding you to is the power of self-governance. And so um, I, I tend to trust their word, um, and I think that reading Shakespeare's play with an eye towards learning what can I, uh, you know, how can I grow in self-government and prudence? Um, is one of the major questions. Um, how does this play help me to know myself better uh, and to grow in my understanding of what is good so that I can practically pursue that good? Um, I think that's a, a major question. So, um, I ha- and, and I think that's what the plays are, are in general, always after. Um, and so I, I do think that's what I would recommend, having that question in mind. Um, Why should students today study Shakespeare? Good question, next question. No, um, why should students study Shakespeare? Um, There are, so historically, I would say, Shakespeare has done as much, maybe, he's either the first or the second most powerful um, shaper of the English language. behind the King James Bible. Um, so uh, in, in, the, in the historical sense, we sort of, Shakespeare sort of, is just an explosive figure who has dominated um, the, the imagination of writers since he was writing. Um, so in, in, in one sense, there's a sort of historical argument. He's just really important, a really important figure. So if we want to know our heritage and our past, even the sort of heritage that's written into our language itself, this thing that we use every day that sort of shapes us, by which we express our innermost person out into the world, into your friends, and by which you're made known to each other, Shakespeare stands near the root of that for us in English. So there's there's sort of historical reasons to study Shakespeare. Um, I tend more towards... um, the philosophical reasons for studying Shakespeare, uh, in that I I think he is an artist who has been given an immense charism by God of understanding what's important for human beings, creating characters who are complex, interesting, engaging, um, who live out seriously difficult situations uh, and we can observe them and and walk with them. Um, so I, I, I think I do think that Shakespeare, more than many, more than most authors um, is able to pull back the veil for us in the, into the world of, of like serious moral philosophy um, and and be and be a real teacher. so um, that that's that's one thing. and then. Um, I had another, another thought, but maybe it's gone. Um, it's just delightful. That's why. That's another reason. It's just simply delightful to read it. Um, especially, I mean, yeah, you have, to, you have to get over sort of the humps uh, of, of difficulty. For, you know, the modern student isn't used to sort of his language and it is sort of trying. But I think after reading two or three plays, or one play a couple of times, um, we, you begin to get the cadence of his, of his language, and then all of a sudden, just the floodgates of beauty are open to you. So, I mean, students should study Shakespeare today because we live in a world that has few beauties <laughs> for us, and we ought to delve into the rich vein of beauty that Shakespeare lays for us. Linguistic beauty, imaginative beauty, just everything. So, that's, those are... Some of my answers for that excellent question. And then uh, this last question. What is your favorite film adaptation of Shakespeare? The Lion King. No. Um, um, uh, But in seriousness, um, I have to confess that I am less well-watched than I am read in Shakespeare. Um, So I'm drawing from a pretty slight pool, but... I think my f- favorite film adaptation is probably no, Kenneth Branagh's take on Much Ado About Nothing. Um, I just think I think it's a I think Benedict is a role that Branagh is perfect for, um, and and Emma Thompson as Beatrice is just perfect. Uh, they they get the sass, they get the beautiful of falling in love, and then the serious uptick at the end—it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's—I think a really beautiful and a beautiful depiction. Um, it, it comes with caveats. I can't universally recommend it. There are scenes in it which are um, borderline impure, so that—that—that um, that, that is a blight. It's a mark against it, um, and I, I could only advise you to watch it if you're, uh, you know, not a responsible adult uh, with responsible adults. Um, probably who have seen it before and know what, what to look out for. Um, but I, I think it's really true to Shakespeare's play, and I think that the characterizations are, are wonderful. So um, that, that concludes. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much.